Hello, and welcome to the Strategica podcast from the Hoover Institution, analyzing the intersection of military history and contemporary national security concerns. You can find us online at hoover.org slash strategica. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, and today we'll be examining the topic of the most recent issue of Strategica, Do Past Arms Control Treaties offer insight about the proposed Iran nuclear agreement. And we are joined today by the author of one of the essays in this issue, Barry Strauss, military historian at Cornell University and a member of Hoover's Military History Working Group. Barry, thanks for being with us. Uh, Thanks for having me. So let me start here. When we talk about arms control, I think the average listener immediately jumps to the modern context and thinks about things like nuclear weapons or chemical weapons. You're, of course, well-known as a historian of the ancient world of Greece and Rome. Would arms control have been a meaningful concept back then? Are there lessons that we can learn about arms control from the ancient world? Well, it, it's a great question. It was a meaningful conflict in the a concept. Excuse me. Arms control was a meaningful concept in the ancient world, uh, though somewhat differently from in our world. Um, it wasn't unusual in the ancient world for the winners in a war to insist that the losers give up their weapons. So one example is uh, the Peloponnesian War. When Sparta defeated Athens in 404 BC, uh, the Spartans insisted that the Athenians agree to tear down their walls and their fortification and to limit their navy, which had previously been over 200 ships, to a mere 12 ships. They also uh, insisted that the Athenians ally with Sparta. And the, the walls of Athens were destroyed in a public ceremony uh, to the accompaniment of flute girls. And the Athenian fleet was handed over to the Spartans. So that would be one example of arms control, but it didn't end well for the Spartans. Nine years later, the Athenians joined an anti-Spartan alliance. They soon began rebuilding most of their walls, and they began building their fleet again. First, they were so poor they only could have 40 ships, but eventually they got it back up to the numbers they had enjoyed before. So not a very successful case of arms control. And. Bringing it up to the modern context, you say much the same in your piece. The opening line of your piece is, quote, the history of arms control agreements is the history of violations. States sign agreements when they must but break them when they wish, close quote. What would you point to as some of the defining examples of that principle? Well, um, we could uh, jump to the 20th century, the early 20th century when Germany defeated Um, In uh, World War I, signed the Treaty of Versailles, and the Treaty of Versailles strictly limited uh, Germany's military and the uh, weapons that it could use. But um, Weimar Germany, uh, which was a democracy and came before the Third Reich, of course, uh, Weimar Germany made a secret treaty with the Soviet Union uh, in which Uh, the Germans were allowed to build and test arms in the Soviet Union. The Soviets were a dictatorship, uh, and they uh, were not open to uh, inspection by the West. So that was a case uh, of arms control violation early in the 20th century. Uh, Also before World War II, 
1930 and 1936, uh, most of the great powers signed the London Naval Treaties, uh, limiting shipbuilding, and Italy, Japan, and the Soviet Union all promptly bent or broke uh, the limitations on that shipbuilding. So what's going on here, Barry? You you make a pretty compelling case in your piece, and it runs actually through all of the strategic contributions in this issue, that certainly where the worst regimes are concerned, these arms control agreements don't tend to work very well. But at the same time, they haven't fallen out of fashion. You're not laughed out of Western capitals for suggesting them. And in fact, I mean, we haven't heard this talk for a while, but President Obama came to office talking about ridding the world of nuclear weapons. What's the um, what's the disjuncture? Why do you imagine these kinds of ideas still have such currency amongst political leaders when there's not a lot of tangible success stories to point to? Well, you know, if you want to take a more optimistic point of view, uh, yes, United please. States, <laughs> the United States has been relatively successful since uh, World War II on limiting nuclear proliferation. It certainly hasn't stopped nuclear prol- proliferation. Um, but the uh, amount of um, nuclear proliferation, proliferation has been relatively limited. So to the extent that the Americans and their allies and even their enemies, if they're involved, can make credible agreements uh, to limit nuclear weapons, uh, it's a good thing. And if you can get a state through, uh, that through a combination of carrots and sticks, you can get that state to agree not to build nuclear weapons, uh, then that's an example of success. The difficulty is when you have a state, a state that really does want to build nuclear weapons and in which um, the U.S. is unwilling uh, to use the full panoply of carrots and sticks, then thinking that an arms control treaty is going to uh, be a panacea, I think that's, that's very dangerous because it, it generally doesn't work in those situations. Well, to that point, thinking back on the events of the past few decades, specifically in the nuclear context, you look at who was denied the bomb. Right. Um, Iraq, facility bombed by the Israelis. Syria, right. much more recently, facility bombed by the Israelis. Right. Libya gave up their program in the wake of the war with Iraq when it started to look like there would be a cost associated with such things. One could make a case there, Barry, that the single best form of arms control is having a – a robust military capacity and being willing to use it. Is that too cynical? No, it's not too cynical. Um, I would, the only thing I would add to that, of course, is that you have to uh, combine that with effective diplomacy. Right. I mean, it's, it's no good if, you, if a state feels that they are going to be destroyed if they, if they give in to you. You have to give a state the, the sense that um, there is a way out for them and there's a happy future for them. Um, if they uh, if they give up their their nuclear weapons, if Gaddafi, for instance, could have foreseen his fate in the Arab Spring, he might have said, you know, I'm going for broke. I'm going for these nuclear weapons, regardless of American threats. Um, so uh, that was a counterexample, and I think one that might not have been helpful uh, with Iran because a person could a cynic could take away the lesson from that. Well, the Americans promised. Um, that uh, they would have peaceful coexistence if, if they gave up their, their weapons, and look what happened. Likewise, Ukraine is an example of a state that agreed by right. negotiation to give up its, its nuclear weapons, a very different kind of state, of course, uh, and that hasn't had a happy outcome either. So, um, yes, you have to have uh, uh, 
a great power projecting strength, but also you have to be willing, able to give um, the state making concessions some kind of credible agreement that you will have its back in the future. So let's apply that to this current nuclear deal with Iran. You say it's strategic right. that you're not optimistic about this deal's chances for success. Uh, do you reckon that we've made an error of degrees or an error of, of kind? That is to say, was there a possibility to do a deal that would have better served American interests or was it a mistake here to think there'd be a dipl- diplomatic solution in the first place? You know, I have to be humble and say on a certain level, I don't know. But that being said, uh, what we didn't try was to use more of a combination of carrots and sticks, which again, I think is usually most effective in diplomacy. Um, Certainly the sanctions were a stick, and that was a very good thing that we applied sanctions. But we could have used more military force. It would have been dangerous, as the use of military force always is, but it could have also um, shown to uh, the Iranian regime that the U.S. was serious about this matter and that they would have to make more concessions if they wanted an agreement. While at the same time, I do agree with the Obama administration that at the same time we had to give the message to uh, the regime that we were not after regime change. Um, because if, if we were saying, well, really, only regime change will make us happy, um, then uh, there'd be no incentive for the Iranian regime to make an agreement. So this will be the, the final question that I put to you as a historian. Um, when you, it's interesting when you look back, I guess, 15 years at this point to the enunciation of the, uh, the axis of evil in the Bush administration, right. Iran, Iraq, North Korea. Iraq obviously to one side, but you've got North Korea with a nuclear capacity. Iran looks like it's headed in that direction. Right. As a historian, how do you think we'll eventually look back on this era and how we've handled the threats from the North Koreas and the Irans of the world? I fear that we will not look back kindly on our policies. Um, I fear that we are laying the groundwork for new and more terrible wars. Well, I, yeah, I, I, you know, I wish I could be. I, I can go on at length, but um, uh, to me, it's tremendously worrisome. All right, not a lot of sources of optimism. I'm sure that we'll be talking to you about this again in the future. My guest has been Barry Strauss, military historian at Cornell University and a member of Hoover's Military History Working Group. You can read his essay and those by other members of the group by visiting us online at hoover.org slash strategica. That's S-T-R-A-T-E-G-I-K-A. Barry, thank you for being with us. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Strategica, and I'm Victor Davis Hanson. 